Thank you for joining us. This broadcast is made possible by the Lord and the donations of brethren like yourself. If you would like to give a donation to help keep this broadcast on the air, please visit llgive.com. Thank you and shalom. Shalom, everyone. I'm Monty Judah with Lion and Lamb Ministries, and this is our study of the Gospel of Matthew. We are in the middle of chapter 12, beginning at verse 42, and so let me just review very quickly what we've been looking at in this chapter. Uh, Yeshua has been um, dialoguing with the Pharisees and the scribes, and the Pharisees and the scribes, they had certain ideas about how to keep the commandments of the Lord, particularly on Sabbath. And in this chapter that we've been looking at, the, the Messiah was addressing that and was addressing the fact that their precepts and their traditions were uh, being added to and taking away from the commandments of the Lord about Sabbath and demonstrating that God's power could work on the Sabbath. He was healing on the Sabbath. And in the last uh, particular portion, uh, this is when they said, well, okay, if you're really from God, show us a sign. And he told them that an evil and adulterous generation would only receive the sign of Jonah. And we know that to be about the three days and three nights. And it was about the resurrection of Yeshua coming out of the grave after three days and three nights. That would be the sign to them. Now, you know, a lot of you um, probably think, well, um, Jewish people just dismiss the whole idea that Yeshua was resurrected. Au contraire. It is very clear in the Talmud that even going back into that literature with uh, the rabbis, um, they acknowledge that this Yeshua of Nazareth was resurrected. They just don't know where he went. And they haven't talked to him since then. And it's a little bit like the story of, of um, um, Joseph. When the brothers sold Joseph off to Egypt, well, they just figured he's gone. Well, what did they think he was going to do, or what do you think would happen to him? So it's a shock to them when Joseph shows up, and he's the viceroy of Egypt, and they're there to buy food because they're not expecting him to be there. Why wouldn't they expect him to be there? They sold him into slavery to Egypt. Why, why is it impossible for them to think that Joseph is there? Well, the same question could be asked of these rabbis, Pharisees, and so forth. If you acknowledge that he's been resurrected and he went away, he's not dead in the grave, he went away, well, where is he? And is there a possibility we could see him again? Well, that's what Yeshua was alluding to, that the sign that he, the only sign given to them was the sign of Jonah uh, for it. Now, that conversation is still going on in chapter 12, and at verse 42, it shifts to this. The queen of the south shall rise up with this generation at the judgment and shall condemn it, because she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. Uh, he's basically saying, you guys are going to be judged by a whole variety of people. Uh, even the queen of, south, uh, of the south, you know, coming from Egypt and Ethiopia, is going to judge you. And she went to hear the wisdom of Solomon, 
And you guys don't recognize that there's something greater than the wisdom of Solomon in front of you, and you're not paying attention. You're not understanding. Well, obviously, the thing that's greater than the wisdom of Solomon was the Messiah himself that was there trying to share with him, and they're rejecting what he says. Verse 43, Now when the unclean spirit goes out of a man, it passes through waterless places, seeking rest, does not find it. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came, and when it comes, it finds it unoccupied, swept, and put in order. Then it goes and takes along with it seven other spirits more wicked than itself, and they go in and live there, and the last state of the man becomes worse than the first. That is the way it will be with this evil generation. Yeshua is actually sharing some spiritual laws, if you will, about spirits. And he's basically saying that if a person has an unclean spirit and that spirit is cast out and that person is is restored, if he doesn't get right with the Lord right then, there's a possibility that evil spirit will return only with some buds and his last lot will be far worse than the first one. And so he's talking about spiritual warfare. And if you remember in the Gospels here, Yeshua's been casting a lot of evil spirits out of people. And he's basically saying to them, if I cast those out and and get your house clean, get you you clean from evil spirits, you better start dealing with you. You better start coming to term with me, or else you'll be defenseless again when the evil spirits come. And he said, this is what happens to an evil generation when you reject the Lord then you are making yourself victim to other uh, unclean spirits. And as we approach the end of the ages, we know there's going to be a tremendous amount of spiritual activity. And as people reject the Lord and the world that we're in, unclean spirits are going to have a field day with them. And their lives are going to be miserable as a result of it. So if you don't believe in the Lord, then you're probably not going to believe in these evil spirits, but you will suffer the consequences of them is what he's saying here. All right, verse 46. And while he was speaking to the multitudes, behold, his mother and brothers were standing outside seeking to speak to him. And someone said to him, Behold, your mother and your brothers are standing outside seeking to speak to him. But he answered the one who was telling him and said, Who is my mother and who is my brother? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, Behold, my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father who is in heaven, he is my brother and sister and mother. It's a very simple scene. He's inside. There's a whole crowd of people. He's ministering in there. And his mother and and his siblings appear on the outside. Now, they can't get in because it's, it's full. So they send the message into him, hey, your mother and your brother are outside. They'd like to talk with you. And Yeshua uses that moment. Uh, to basically, uh, he, he's, he's not saying, I'm not going to talk to him, he, he, but he's using that moment to explain that when you become part of him, you literally become part of the family of God. That's the reason why we call our Heavenly Father our Father, is because we're part of his family. And so Yeshua is emphasizing, look around. We're, you know, that woman, that, that's like my mother, that, that's like my sister, that's like my brother. 
you know, he, he's considering everyone to be included, to be a part of the kingdom. And that's a very important principle because a lot of people, uh, when they come to the Lord, have, have had difficulties in their life in the past with fathers and mothers and brothers and sisters. And it's a, a relationship with God restores a lot of basic things in your heart that you need. You need a relationship uh, with others that is kind and nurturing and helpful. And for a lot of people who have not had the benefit from their earthly fa- uh, family, the Lord is really the answer for them. In fact, uh, there's no earthly family that can possibly match what the Lord can do. And even if you had a great family, you still need the Lord, and uh, you'll be nurtured even more. All right, we're coming to chapter 13. Sometimes people, teachers, call this the uh, parable chapter because Yeshua is going to teach a whole series of parables about what is the kingdom of God. You know, how does the kingdom of God work? With that, chapter 13, verse 1, And on that day Yeshua went out of the house and was sitting by the sea, and a great multitude gathered to him so that he got into a boat and sat down. And the whole multitude were standing on the beach. And he spoke many things to them in parables, saying, Behold, the sower went out to sow. Now, before I go into the parables, I want you to get the scene here. He's down at the, at the, at the sea. He's down at the edge. But all these people show up. Um, so he actually gets in a boat. And I think he went offshore just slightly. I think he just took the boat, not there at the bank, but he went offshore. And so that there was a, and it actually built a kind of a natural amphitheater, whether you realize it or not, but sound travels across water very well. And by being in the boat, his, his, the sound of his voice was able to travel to many people uh, there on the shore for him to speak. So he seized that moment to be able to speak. So we can assume that this was a very large crowd, that it wasn't just a handful of people. This, there was quite a few people who came, and he was in a position to be able to speak to them. Now, he didn't have his own portable PA system and a speaker system and a microphone and all that, but he was using the natural elements uh, of that. But the, why, why is that recorded for us in Scripture here? It's basically to let you know there's a very large audience that is going to be listening to this teaching. So with that said, he spoke to him in parables, saying, Behold, the sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seeds fell beside the road, and the birds came and ate them up. And others fell upon rocky places where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up because they had no depth of soil. But when the sun had risen, they were scorched because they had no root, they withered away. And others fell among the thorns, and the thorns came up and choked them out. And others fell on good soil and yielded a crop, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. Now that's a, that's a famous biblical expression. We find this many times. Yeshua uses this even in the book of Revelation uh, about if you're, if you're really listening to me, you need to listen even more than what your ears hear. You need to listen with understanding, is what he's saying. In other words, it's an encouragement. Try to understand this. So he has given this explanation of seeds going in different places, but only the seed that got to good ground 
formed roots, then that's the one that produced uh, the harvest. The others, for a variety of reasons, did not reproduce uh, whatsoever. You do know that one of the goals that we have, uh, being a human being as well as a spiritual person, is to grow and produce fruit. In the case of physically, you know, we get married, we have children, we, you know, we're, we multiply. Uh, in the case spiritually, that's just as true. You're supposed to be growing to the point you produce fruit for the kingdom. You produce those things that are profitable for the kingdom of God. Um, and so he's talking about this whole business about how do you grow and how do you produce a harvest. And the disciples came to him and said, why do you speak to them in parables? Well, that's an interesting. Why don't you just tell them directly? Why, why do you use this story type technique? And he answered, he said to them, to you it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been granted. Oh my. Well, that's interesting. I thought Yeshua came and he was telling everybody. No, he says there's a mystery. You know, this is spiritual teaching. If you're coming at the Bible uh, from purely academic point of view, you're not going to learn it. You have to come at it from a spiritual standpoint. God is a spirit. He's communicating spiritually. In fact, Paul in 1 Corinthians 2 specifically says to us, we speak spiritual words and spiritual thoughts, which the natural man doesn't get. So one of the things that we have to do when, particularly when we're studying the scripture, is that you have to ask the Lord, Lord, could you teach me? Could you show me what this means? So he's teaching in a parable and he's teaching in a certain way that it's really intended for the disciples, they will understand it, but the others won't. They'll just hear an interesting story, and they'll think, well, that's it. But they don't process it uh, correctly, and they don't get the spiritual understanding. So he's talking about that that's what's taking place. Uh, verse 12, and then he says this rather interesting thing here. For whoever has, to him shall more be given and he shall have an abundance. But whoever does not have, even what he has shall be taken away from him. The Lord is talking about that it's, kind of, it's a binary uh, thing with the Lord about whether or not you believe him. Either you do believe him, and, and you go all the way with it, or you, you don't believe in him. And a lot of people are always playing this game with the Lord where, well, I'll believe at the right moments. I'll time my life so that when I have trouble, I'm believing. And when everything's going good, I'll go ahead and do what I want to do. Um, and they think they can get away with that as believing. He's saying, no, you're not going to get away from that. What he's saying is, if you play that game, even what you have will be taken away from you. You will have nothing when, it is, when you come to give an account to the Lord uh, because you, you really weren't with me uh, for it. And again, he's talking about the measure of what is essential to believe in him and that, uh, and that he has to be at the forefront uh, of our faith. 
Verse 13, Therefore I speak to them in parables, because while seeing, they do not see, and while hearing, they do not hear, nor do they understand. Just as I said, that's what he's trying to explain to them. Just because you sat in front of me and listened to me, that doesn't necessarily mean that you've understood what I've said. And just because you've seen something I've done, it doesn't necessarily understand that you understand what I've done. Um, and it's essential uh, that we, if we are sincere and real about our faith, we need to make sure that everything that we see and we hear, that we process that with the Lord so that we understand what the Lord's doing. All right, so continuing on, um, he says he's going to reference um, from Isaiah as to why they see, but they don't understand, they hear, but they don't hear. Verse 14, and in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is being fulfilled, which says, and now he's going to quote Isaiah here, you will keep on hearing, but will not understand. You will keep on seeing, but will not perceive. For the heart of this people has become dull, and their ears scarcely hear. And they have closed their eyes, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and return that I should heal them. So clearly it's possible for you to, to not see and not hear, although you think you are. It's clearly possible for you not to understand, and then you don't get the benefit of it. But if you seek the Lord with your heart, you're able to see things that even your eyes can't see. You're able to hear and understand things even beyond what you have heard before. Um, verse 16, but blessed are your eyes because they see and you have ears because they hear. For truly I say to you that many prophets and righteous men desired to see what you see and did not see it and to hear what you hear, but they did not hear it. Um, when anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away that which has been sown in the heart. This is the one on whom the seed was sown beside the road. And the one on whom the seed was sown on the rocky places, this is the man who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no firm root in him, but it is only temporary. And when affliction or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he falls away. And the one on whom the seed was sown among the thorns, this is the man who hears the word, and the worry of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it becomes unfruitful. And the one on whom the seed was sown on the good soil, this is the man who bears, uh, hears the word, understands it, who indeed bears fruit, brings forth some a hundredfold, some sixty and some thirty. So he's gave the parable, and now he's even given the detail of it. And um, he's showing that there are three types of consequences, three types of issues in which the word will go out where it's not profitable. It doesn't bring the return. That it's only this one in which you have to be rooted in the Lord. You have to be in good ground. Um you know, the expression that I've shared and taught for many years as a Torah teacher, when the word says, keep the commandments, the word keep in the Hebrew is the same word used for keep a garden. 
Now, if I was going to go out, you were going to go out, we were going to plant a garden, what soil would we plant it on? Would I take my seeds and put them on the asphalt? No. That's a good way to feed birds. You know, would I throw them in the gravel? Well, no. There's moisture in there. They'll start to grow, but there's not enough ground there for them to do it. And then besides that, all those hot rocks and the gravel, when it'll kill the plant. And and I certainly don't want to gr- try to grow a garden in in a midst of just full of weeds because the weeds will choke it out. So obviously I have to have clear ground. I have to have good soil, and I and I put the seeds there. The, the Lord is trying to say if you're going to learn the things of the kingdom, you have to be in that kind of posture. You you can't do this in a casual way. You can't just throw it out there. And hopes everything works out. No, you got to you got to be diligent about this and work toward growing and learning, and, you know, about the kingdom, and that requires a measure of commitment on your part. Any student who goes to school has to have some measure of commitment, and that is to sit, receive the instruction, and complete the curriculum uh, that is set forth and work toward the graduation, so that you learn what you're supposed to learn. If you just take uh, if you go to college and you're taking your enrolled for a couple of classes and you go party hardy, what are you going to learn? Nothing. You're just going to waste your time and probably your parents' money uh, of you trying to go to school. You have to be committed and you have to do the right things to be able to learn and grow. And that's certainly true spiritually of the kingdom. So verse 24, he's going to present another parable to us. He says, he presented another parable to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seeds in his field, but while men were sleeping, his his enemy came and sowed tares also among the wheat and went away. But when the wheat sprang up and bore grain, then the the tares became evident also. And the slaves of the landowner came and said to him, Sir, do you not sow good? Did you not sow good seed in your field? Then how does it have tares? And he said to them, An enemy has done this. And the slave said to him, Do you what? Do you want us then to go and gather them up? And but he said, No, lest while you're gathering up the tares, you may root up the wheat with them. Allow both to grow together until the harvest. And in the time of the harvest, I will say to the reapers. First, gather the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them up, but gather the wheat into my barn. Now, that's a very fascinating parable, given that he just explained the goal for us is to plant the seed in good ground. So he says, okay, so we planted the seed in good ground, but we have an enemy in the faith. The enemy in the faith does not want you to be successful. So guess what he's going to come do? He's also going to plant seed into you, and it's going to spring up, and it's going to cause problems for you, and you're going to be in the midst of this hassle, and you're going to have this these problems in your life, even though you're pursuing the Lord and want to have the good things with the Lord. The Lord is saying, don't tear out your faith just to get rid of that stuff. He said, let them grow. Let them grow, because when the time of the harvest comes, it becomes very clear to the laborers as to what to do. And let me tell you, since I have experience in working the harvest, 
Let me tell you what happens. When the, the wheat first comes up, it's green. It's a green plant. And it begins to shoot that straw up, which has the head where the grain is at. Now the weeds pop up, and they grow about the same way the, the wheat does. And then the weeds grow up. But guess what? They stay green, but the wheat turns golden. And you, it's obvious what is the difference between the weeds and the grain. And um, I remember one time, I, I truly do, uh, we went to this field to harvest it with combines. And we got there, and literally all we saw was a field full of weeds. It was just weeds. And they said, well, where do you want us to harvest? He said, this field. I said, what are you harvesting? It's just all I see is weeds. He said, no, no, there's, there's wheat in there. Really? So we start harvesting, and sure enough, the combine is chewing up those weeds and bringing the straw in. But the way the combine was working, it was separating out the chaff and the weeds in one way and gathering the grain. And when we got done, there is a grain, uh, a bin full of grain. And all these weeds are dead now that we all cut down. And so I learned a very important lesson about you can still get the grain out of a field that is full of weeds. You can At the harvest, you can still do it. And so the Lord is basically, I think, saying to us in these last days, what do we have? Well, we have wheat and we have tares. We have the good grain and we also have all these weeds. And man, some days... It looks like there's more weeds in this world than there is good grain. We don't have the visibility that the Lord has, and so we just see kind of what stands out in front of us. But let me just go ahead and assure you, according to this parable, the Lord is saying there's going to come a time. In fact, if you want to read some description of that, you can go to Revelation 14 about how the angels come and they reap, and they reap first those that are going to be judged and then they gather in the other harvest. And uh, part of the prophecies of the end of the age is about this great harvest uh, in this parable that he is describing uh, for us. All right, verse 31. He presented another parable to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took, sowed in his field, and this is smaller than all the other seeds, but when it's full grown, it is large larger than the garden plants, and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and nest in its branches. Um, the last time I was in Israel, um, the we were able to see these bright yellow plants pop up, and those are mustard plants. And at first blush, it's a beautiful yellow color, but it really kind of grows like a weed. I mean, it grows vociferous but it has a very tiny seed, which is the mustard. And so that's what he's making the statement about. Some plants, the seed is real tiny and the plant is big. You know, and so, so there's variations that we see um, in agriculture. There's also variations that we see spiritually as to how things work out as well. Uh, verse 34, all these things, Yeshua spoke to the multitude in parables, and he did not speak to them without a parable, so that it was spoken through the prophet might be fulfilled, saying, I will open my mouth in parables, I will utter things hidden since the foundation of the world. 
Uh, I like that phrase from the foundation of the world because there's other references that says God's plan has, was actually put together before the foundations of the world, his, his great plan that he has. So that's what, we, that's what he's referring to, and there's a, there was an actual prophecy the Messiah would come and teach in this way. Verse 36, Then he left the multitudes, went into the house, and his disciples came to him, saying, Explain to us the parable of the tares of the field. Now we're going to go back to that previous one. And he answered and said to them, The one who sows the good seed is the son of man, and the field is in the world. And as for the good seed, these are the sons of the kingdom, and the tares are the sons of the evil one. And the enemy who sowed them is the devil, and the harvest is at the end of the age, and the reapers are angels. And just as I shared with you, um, that's the world that we have at the time. God started out and created a wonderful world and put man in it. But then the enemy came for the purpose to try to destroy it, so he sowed a different seed. You see the first evidence of the different seed in Cain and Abel and Seth. Cain was the, the first murderer. You see it make it all the way down to uh, Abraham, whose son is Isaac, versus Ishmael. There's a split. You see Esau, Jacob. You see a difference. Uh, from Esau came the descendants of Amalek, whom the children of Israel had to fight. And, and you see this progression of where there's a good seed working in the world, there's a bad seed working in the world, and you see it, you see it carried out in all of the various historical biblical stories, you know, for it. And the truth of the matter is, that you, if you look at the Messiah, he's the good seed. You look at the Antichrist, he's the bad seed. They're in competition with each other. There's a battle, and the Lord is saying, hey, this thing will be completed at the end of the ages. At the end of the ages, this is going to be resolved. The enemy is going to be destroyed. The good will go forward into the kingdom. Verse 40, Therefore, just as the tares are gathered up and burned with fire, so it shall be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send forth his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all stumbling blocks, and those who commit lawlessness will cast them in the furnace of fire, and in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of his Father. He who has ears, let him hear. Let's continue on. Verse 44. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in the field, which a man found and hid, and from joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has, and he buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking fine pearls, and upon finding one pearl of great value, he went and sold all that he had, and he bought it. And again, the kingdom of heaven is like a dragnet cast into the sea, gathering fish of every kind. And when it's filled, they drew it up on the beach, and they sat down and gathered the good fish into containers, but the bad they threw away. So it will be at the end of the age, angels shall come forth and take all of the wicked from the righteous and will cast them into the furnace, and there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. All right, so having taught these parables, we come to a very interesting thing. Yeshua turns to the disciples now, and he says the following, verse 51. Have you understood all of these things? And they said to him, yes. I mean, he's been explaining to them the parables. He's been showing the parables, 
to the people, but he comes back and gives explanation to them. And then when they answer yes, he says the following. He said to them, therefore, now by the way, if you've been around church at all and heard of basic biblical teachers, they will tell you that anytime you see the word therefore, you are getting ready to hear something very profound. Because everything that's been said before was to get you to this point. And so he's, therefore, every scribe who has become a disciple of the kingdom of heaven is like the head of a household who brings out, forth out his treasures, things new and old. Remember we were talking about scribes and Pharisees? Now who were the scribes? The scribes are the guys that actually write and copy the scripture. The scribes were uh, um, very well educated. If you needed a deed for a, a land, a, a field that you had bought, you would go and get a scribe, and he would write the deed out for you so that you would have the deed proof uh, for it. And scribes were the ones who knew the Scripture far better than anyone else. Now, a Pharisee was a preacher. I mean, he was a religious man, and he was just looking at the work of the scribe. But the scribe is the guy who's copying the Scripture, and so he's spending way more time in the Scripture. So he says, if you can get a scribe, if you can get one of these guys that really knows the Scripture, knows the Torah in particular, he says, if you can get him to become a disciple of the King, become a believer in me, he said, he will be like the head of the household that brings forth out his treasure things new and old. Basically what he's saying is this. If you can get a person who knows intimately what is in the Torah, and he becomes a believer of Yeshua, he can show you things in the house of God. He can show you things in the Torah, literally, that will blow your socks off. He will show you new things and old things. He will be able to explain a lot more about the kingdom to you than even what he's been sharing in the parables. He's trying to sit. Now, I've told you about the, the kingdom. I've told you about how it's all going to work. But if you can get one of those guys that really knows the scriptures, he will be like the head of the house, the house of God. He will be proclaiming to you these incredible treasures of the house. Now, a lot of people, um, when they look at that, I remember being in my earlier days as a Christian, I, I just glossed over this. I didn't pay attention to it. It was after I started studying the Torah that I discovered, wait a minute, there's things in here that I've never heard any teacher ever say because I haven't been around other teachers who really knew what was in the Torah. For example, I discovered that these scribes, they do interesting things in copying the Scripture. They make little squiggly things, and they're part of the Scripture. We call them jots and tittles. They will literally put jots above certain letters, and in the Torah there are four times that they do that. They will take a letter and do a couple of different things with them. They'll sometimes enlarge the letter, make it look bold, and sometimes they'll take a letter and they'll make it small 
So you're seeing a whole line of letters, and all of a sudden that one letter is real small. Sometimes they'll take the letter and draw it backwards. Sometimes they'll raise it off the baseline and elevate it up, kind of above the other letters. Sometimes they take a letter and they break it in parts. Sometimes they take a letter and they stretch it down. They, the letter's there, but they stretch it down. It's called elongated. They, they stretch it down. Every one of those little jots and tittles, there's a teaching that goes with them. Now, let me just tell you, the English Bible translators, there is no way for them to translate that into our scriptures. For example, the very first letter of the Bible in Bereshit, or in the beginning, is the letter Bet. And the first thing the scribes do in the Torah is they make the letter Bet big. It's an enlarged bet. Now, the Bereshit is translated in the beginning. Now, how do you try to explain in the translation in the beginning that the letter bet has been made big, and it has to do with the teaching of, are you ready for this, the house? The letter bet is the shape of a house. So let me tell you what a scribe can teach you. And this is like one of the treasures of the old. In the letter, or excuse me, in the word Bereshit, I can teach you all of the basic concepts of God's intent to establish his house by just looking at that one word and looking at the letters used, the meaning of the letters, and then understanding the enlarged letter bet is the real purpose of the beginning is to establish the house of God. Now that will preach. Because that's really, by the way, we've been sitting here listening to the Messiah teach the parables about the house of God and the kingdom of God. First letter of the Torah is an enlarged bet. It's trying to teach you that lesson. The very first one. It doesn't stop there. There are multitude of these things that exist. Now, the closest thing that we have to understanding those scribal marks and so forth is that Yeshua gave some of the teachings in the Gospels. Paul gives some of the teachings in his letters. Um, in fact, uh, when he teaches in Romans chapter 12, 1 and 2, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice unto the Lord, so that you might know the perfect will of God. You don't know it, but that's the teaching of the small mem that's in Leviticus 6, where it's how do you present a whole burnt offering. And the teaching there in Leviticus is you put your whole living soul up there. It's not the animal that goes up there. You go up there and you become the sacrifice and so that you can understand the will of God in your life. By the way, the phrase, I beseech you by the mercies of God, that is the biblical description of the whole sacrificial system. All of the sacrifices are called the mercies of God. Each type of sacrifice explains one of the mercies of God. And by the way, if you want to know about the 13 attributes of God, 
You go to Exodus 30, 34, verses 6 and 7, and God describes 13 attributes of them, and those are called the 13 attributes of mercy of God. There's a sacrifice that matches each one in the law. So if you go back and you understand what the sacrificial system is and what the meaning of the sacrifices are spiritually, and then Paul's trying to teach you and said, look, when you beseech the Lord, you know, beseech it like you're coming to the altar. You put your whole person up there. Then you'll know the will of God. Because that's how God taught to do that back in the Torah. Only a scribe who really knows what the Scripture says can give you that teaching. By the way, how did Paul know all about this? Well, Paul was a Torah scholar. He wasn't a scribe, but he was an expert in the Torah. And that's what Yeshua is saying. If you can get one of these people who really knows the Torah, he can show you things in there that'll blow your socks off. You will receive the treasures of the house, the treasures of the kingdom. You will understand the deep things of the kingdom for it. Verse 53, and it came about that when Yeshua had finished these parables, he departed from them, and coming to his hometown, he began teaching them in their synagogues so that they were astonished and said, where did this man get this wisdom and the, these miraculous powers? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary and his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And his sisters, are they not all with us? Where did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. But Yeshua said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. To me, it's a verse that says, Yeshua grew up in a normal family. He, he, he can identify with us, you know, from that standpoint. So I, I see it as encouragement to me. You know, he understands me. He understands my family. He understands what's been going on in my life. Amen? So let me complete the chapter here uh, for it. And he did, he, he did not do many miracles there because of unbelief. And it is true. If you go to an assembly of people and they're not willing to believe, save your breath. You know, you're not, you're not going to accomplish anything. Because you're talking to people that need to believe in God. If they don't want to believe in God, they're not going to listen to anything you have to say. All right, brethren, we are going to start our next program on chapter 14. Uh, shalom to all of you.